I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, John, hello again. (laughs) Hi, Milton. Now, we did a trailer for this podcast a little while ago in which I told all our loyal listeners not to get excited about hearing from you all the time because it wasn't going to let you on very often. Um, But there's been protests. And I think, actually, you're going to be on for almost every episode. We're going to have a little chat before we get into the the meat of me talking to our guest. So, So, you know, that's nice. That's good. I'm glad that the uh, pitchfork wielding mob outside the Bloomberg building worked in my favour. I feel good about it too. Um, (laughs) Now, listen, this is our favourite time of year. You and I, we've been working together a long time and December always has something really special about it for us, which is that this is the time of year. It's the season for forecasts. It's when people start telling us what they think is going to happen next year and, and we can make fun of them. Which really works, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's basically the S and P will go up by seven percent, mm-hmm. give or take, whatever it went up by last year. Mm-hmm. And we have the particular joy of looking at the forecast they made last year, yes, and comparing it to what really happened. Yes, yeah, and it's always wrong. Always wrong. <laughs> now we'll come on to more of that in, when we get into the meat of the podcast. I say with our with our excellent guest today. But one of the things that people are starting doing is talking about their surprise predictions for next year, things you don't think will happen that they think will happen. And very often I look at those and I think, well, that wouldn't really surprise me at all. So one of the banks come up, Standard Charter will come out with one uh, this week, which is that over the next year, the price of Bitcoin may fall to $5,000. And I'm like, well, isn't that a given? Would that surprise yeah. me? Would that surprise you? No, I mean, not at all. I mean, I, th- I think one of the things with these surprise predictions is they're usually things that uh, kind of mainstream analyst feels are a tiny bit controversial because it's a price move that it goes beyond 7% <laughs> up the way. And that's basically it. Anything other than that would be a surprise. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Bitcoin falling to five thousand dollars isn't uh, isn't I wouldn't say, it, but like kind of way out there. Mm. I mean, uh, zero would be a surprise, but only because of the time frame. Zero within two or three years wouldn't be a surprise. Zero would be a surprise because of the time frame. I mean, I still I know that me and you slightly like, kind of don't entirely agree on this one. I still think Bitcoin has got some kind of potential. Yeah, but you can't I don't think what it think is. Think it'll can go you? to zero, but I just think it's very, very, very minor. Because um, it's way too complicated to. You know, you've been on Twitter asking people for explanations, and and rather than explanations, you know getting say? a lot of abuse. Last a lot week. of abuse, but you know what they say? They say educate yourself. I educate know, yourself. I know. And then they send me reading lists, and I, I, I've read all those books. In fact, I recommended those books to you in the first place. Yeah. And reading those books didn't get me any further towards understanding what the use case is. And yeah. then people keep telling me, you know, that at the very, very worst, even if nobody else uses it at all, it'll be continued to be used by the criminal community. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that can't 
possibly work because you can only launder money out of the black economy if you can launder it via something that people in the non-black economy use. And if we don't yeah. use Bitcoin, then criminals can't use Bitcoin because they can't launder it, launder it from their world to our world. Well, yeah, because you know that anyone who's using... Or am I missing something? No, no. I mean, that, that's the thing you are, right? I mean, because you know that anyone who's using a Bitcoin off-ramp is a criminal, um, which is quite tricky. You know, it's the way that I guess... Like, if I don't you know, know who's going to sue you for that, but someone's going to. <laughs> I haven't libeled anyone specifically. What would happen next year that everyone's going to think is a surprise but isn't going to be a surprise to you? I actually think that... I mean, this, oh, this is a bit of a boring one, but I don't think that the UK is going to go into a devastating recession. I actually think it's going to end up being a fairly kind of good place to have put your money this year when everyone was panicking about it. But it can be a good place to put your money and still have a devastating recession. These things don't necessarily match. I mean, we've written so many times over the years that there's no correlation between GDP and stock market performance. Oh, yeah, that's we? true. I mean, it's nothing to do with the GDP, but I still think that Britain's going to do better than everyone expects. I'm concerned because I have this horrible feeling that mild might be the new transitory. Well, I, I know. It's tricky. It is tricky. My uh, gut feeling is that it's not going to be as bad as people think it's going to be. Um, I actually think the energy prices are probably going to come down more than people expect. So it's actually kind of a, believe it or not, it's kind of an optimistic upside one. But that is that is going out there on the limb for me because I'm not I'm kind of naturally bearish. Mm. Listeners, you should know that I'm looking at John disapprovingly at the moment. <laughs> uh, yeah, honestly, I'm weathering, <laughs> literally weathering here. <laughs> John, thank you so much for coming on and talking again. And listeners, I think you're going to hear from him again next week. <laughs> Let's get behind. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset Webb. This week, a conversation with Saxo Bank's Chief Investment Officer, Steen Jacobson, who joins with the bank's 10 outrageous predictions for 2023. Um, he does this every year, lots of outrageous stuff. We've just heard uh, uh, John's outrageous predictions for next year, which um, uh, are relatively positive. However, I started my conversation with Steen with a look back at the predictions for this year and how they panned out. I think it's uh, one of the better years, although, as, as you very well know, we actually don't set out trying to be right about anything. It's, it's, it's more a conversation starter and more a sort of a perspective of the, the fat tails. But yeah, I, I think the one that probably costs the most money for the average investor is the uh, uh, prediction that there will be a face flaunt and meta. Uh, I think we can safely say that one uh, came through. Can we say that the young abandoned the platforms in protest against their mining of personal information for profit? Can we say that or can we just say the share price fell a lot? Well, we can certainly say that later. And I think uh, as as you are as experienced as I am in doing this, it's uh, not always that you get the, either the direction or the end result right, but sometimes you get the results right and sometimes you get the arguments right. But I think what we were trying to say last year was that a lot of people would be abandoning Meta and certainly the investor did abandon Meta. And I also think to a large extent, the, the point that young people don't want to be part of it has shown up in, of course, if nothing else, in the Meta space, which was supposed to be populated by young people uh, coming onto this virtual world. But I think the young people like uh, me, and uh, maybe I'll talk for you as well, is figuring out that the reality, uh, the real world is hard enough. Uh, then also having to navigate a, a virtual world is probably a little bit too much in the present conditions. Mm, it's absolutely true. Neither of my children are on Facebook. So there you go. You win that one. What about the first one you had last year? The plan to end fossil fuels gets a rain check. I mean, it's not formal, the uh, putting a rain check on that plan, but it's definitely happening, isn't it? It's definitely happening. And it's, uh, I think it's become even more relevant today than it was last year in the sense that if you think about what 23 really meant, of course, the Ukraine war was a starting point and to a large extent, a acceleration of the trends in place. Uh, you know, one year ago, uh, Germany had uh, its free tier approach, which was uh, to export to China, uh, depending on very low energy prices from Russia and not having to pay off for its military. I, I would say all of those things has changed, but what has really changed, in particularly in Germany, of course, is a party like the Green Party, a protest movement in the energy space is now fully on board on reopening nuclear power and on the, the case which is, and this is the case globally, that uh, energy and re energy sourcing has become a number one priority for every single government around the world. So I think it's pretty safe to say at a bare minimum that uh, fossil energy is still part of the solution. I don't think the green movement or the green vokeness of the situation has disappeared. I don't think in terms of the latest COP that we are anywhere closer to, to getting the, the results we want, but certainly we all know we all know now that we we need to think about energy as a strategic resource. Okay, well, that's two major successes. What of the others? I, I think uh, I will have a maybe not an A plus, but we will have a B plus for calling inflation to the level that we called it. 
I think we we put in a, uh, a unimaginable at the time level of, uh, if I'm not mistaken, twelve percent. Um, fifteen, fifteen, yeah. No, fifteen. U.S. inflation reaches above fifteen percent on wage price spiral. Um, but you know that that might not have happened this year, but it could easily happen next year. Yeah, and, and the reason for the fifteen percent was really that was fourteen percent was a peak in the nineteen seventies. So we were trying to outdo whatever happened in the nineteen seventies. And I think, as you rightly allude to, I still think the uh, the game is on. Uh, of course, the market right now, what whether you look at break even two five ten or thirties, they all think that it's going to two thirty five. Just as a side note, I think it's interesting. Whatever happens in the next 30 years, apparently the market has dictated that inflation will be a two and uh, 35, 2.35 basis point, uh, 235 basis points uh, inflation. But that's interesting itself. But no, I don't think in any shape or form that the inflation story is over yet. It's interesting. It's real anchoring, isn't it? That just to everyone thinking, well, it'll go back to where it was. It's very much bias confirmation. But I also think it's a true reflection of central banks. Uh, unimaginative models. The model is outdated. The model is not uh, working with real-time data. It's not working with uh, a bottom-up analysis. It's all macro, and uh, we both know that macro is uh, very good in a conversation, but it's very, very difficult to predict. And I think they have remained with this transitory going back to normal all by itself. Apparently, energy is going to solve itself. Uh, supply chain is going to solve itself. Uh, deglobalization is going to solve itself. And on that note, I'm very pleased that everything just solves itself. I think that is a great strategy. I would be thrilled if that would happen, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I certainly prefer it, but I'm not. Uh, I have. Not, I don't have enough hair to actually believe the things solve themselves. I do think they need some uh, actionable and 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 some good things to come out of it. I, I'm, as a side note, I do think that there is a solution to this, and this is that you know the energy crisis, the level of energy, has forced ourselves to at least start considering that we need to live in a productive society. I don't think it's fully transparent in politics, but I think it's very transparent when I talk to companies at a company level. They all understand that the margin in terms of input price is going up, and the only way to counter that will be more productivity, which means better education, better products, better uh, services. So I do think uh, that ultimately the higher prices will lead to lower prices, but driven by productivity, not by hoping, not by praying and certainly not by waiting. I think that's the most optimistic thing I've heard anyone say all year, given how, given how bad productivity has been for so long. It's interesting, the idea that productivity could be, bad, low productivity could be a function of energy being too cheap and too abundant. I mean, that's what people often say about labor costs and labor in the UK in particular. If you have a too much availability of labor at too low a price, you inhibit your own productivity gains. Same idea, right? Or I, a journalist in, uh, of all places, uh, Estonia, asked me a great question earlier this year. He said, okay, Stein, if I gave you a magic wand, what would you do with it? I think, you know, being an, a banker, he expected me to say, turn everything into gold. But right then and there, <laughs> there, there, right there in a moment, I actually realized that what I would want was that the marginal cost of energy would go to zero. That would facilitate desalination of water, uh, vertical farming uh, at scale. It would increase the uh, computer power ability. It will improve the ability of, you know, longevity and the like. So I think if you think about it in that context of productivity, what is holding us back is actually the high level of energy prices. And as the present non 
actionable, the non-plan on, 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 on dealing with this is driving the margin price of energy up, which means that, as you say, we are challenged on productivity. But the solution clearly is to get closer to a multi uh, approach on energy, more basic investment, more basic research. And think about, you know, as, as, a, as an analog, you know, when we had the COVID uh, starting, people were talking about three, four, five years before the vaccine would be available, but throwing enough money at it, open sourcing it, and then, you know, making it a number one priority created that productivity in vaccine. I don't see why we cannot do the same about energy because clearly it is punitive to the uh, consumers, it's punitive to the voters, and more importantly, it's actually changing, as we already discussed, the energy security mix up, but also the way we think about uh, society. And then and, and the final note here, which I think is an important one, I don't know where you realize this, but 90% of all assets which is traded in the world are intangibles. So only 10% of the world's assets are tangibles. And I think you and I both know that energy sits intangible. Uh, your electricity grid network sits intangibles. Your logistics, your last mile delivery sits intangible. So what the world needs, it's more tangible assets. More tangible assets translate into more real economy assets. And as we grow that, we will also massively grow the productivity. So that's my back of an envelope, two minutes uh, macro talk on productivity. Okay, I'm going to make the quick challenge to you on the vaccine that half the people who listen to this will make, which is that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, I know. It's I not know. So I know. Much it took us time to develop than other vaccines. It's just that we uh, cancelled the regulatory environment around most vaccines. If you'd kept the regulatory environment in place, surely it would have taken just as long as any old vaccine. And then at the 25% that don't think the vaccine works, right? And then you have the uh, full audience. But we'll leave that one there, shall we? Um, let me ask you one more question on on um, on last year's. Uh, one of the ones I liked or found interesting was new hypersonic tech drive space race and the new Cold War. And you haven't mentioned that as being one of the ones that that you would get, give yourself a B plus in. But there is definitely a, a Cold War at least going on in space, isn't there? And the hypersonic weapon was activated by the Russians and, and, and everybody else. So, yeah, that is maybe not a B, but then a, a C, C plus at least, but uh, close to a B, yeah. Um, yeah, and I listened to a talk the other day that told me that we didn't really, really have to worry about energy anymore because the cost of energy is effectively going to zero because we will be harvesting solar energy in space. So that sounded nice. That's another optimistic mode. This is turning into be a, a very, uh, it almost could become one of these uh, coach sessions where people get uplifted and uh, see the future better. Shall we take care of that by moving on to next year's predictions? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can Let's, kill that quite quickly. Okay, here we go. <laughs> next year's outrageous predictions. Um, and you titled the whole thing, The War Economy. So anyone who's feeling optimistic or kind of warm and fuzzy from what we've been talking about so far, stop right now. The whole thing is called the war economy. Will you just talk us through a little bit what you mean by that? Yeah, so as we have found that uh, creating a rate of prediction has become more difficult because competing with the real world is very difficult, we sort of try to embed a red threat through the uh, the different years version of the outrage prediction. This one comes with the uh, side title of being uh, the war economy. And what we mean by the war economy is that if you think about what is going on politically in terms of the activation of the bigger uh, public hand, which we got used to under COVID, and which 
certainly politician likes to continue. The backloading of uh, actionable budget uh, cuts, as you see in the UK budget, uh, the constant waiting for better times or constantly waiting for inflation to come down is very much what you see during uh, war periods all the way back to you know 300 before Christ. Uh, there's been limitation on, on commodities. There's been price caps. There's been uh, sourcing, uh, basically the government or the military dictating which resources, which energy groups, which uh, people in society are more important to safeguard the uh, the up uh, the upkeep of uh, both the constitutional but also the borders. So we we think it's probably much easier to analyze what's going on in the world from from sort of a war economy. And and we are not saying the world is at World War Three or anything. We're saying if you think about it on the as you you indicated yourself, if we talk about the war in space, if we talk about the war going on daily in terms of the internet and 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 the dark net for sure, and and what goes on in those activities, I don't think I really want to know what's going on. But I'm pretty sure it's not a nice place. Uh, and I think the uh, deglobalization has been accelerated. What we've seen is the two biggest political initiatives in the world right now is on the U.S. side, the Chips Act, which is basically about reshoring uh, technology and and work and 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 security back to the U.S. And in terms of China, it's the dual circular. The dual circular is really about reducing the export dependency going to the domestic uh, economy. And both of these, of course, plays to not only the deglobalization, but also the the increase in alliances being created, the new alliance in the world is between China and Russia, energy coming from Russia and technology going the other way out. So so all of these are bilateral, uh, strategic military uh, priorities over uh, what we talked about before, productivity, uh, equality, and certainly also the gene, uh, green agenda has been lost a little bit in this race. Okay. So here we are and what is obviously, well, to you anyway, and I think to me as well, not going to be a disinflationary environment for some time. Um, you haven't got in here a specific outrageous prediction on inflation, uh, but lots of the um, of the predictions kind of hang around that area. So one is that uh, gold uh, rockets to $3,000 as central banks fail on, on inflation mandate. And we've, we've slightly talked about why the central banks will fail on their inflation mandate, because their target is very random and their models are rubbish. Um, but is there a reason why that will send gold to $3,000 for, for people who don't believe in gold as an inflation hedge, of which there, there are many? Well, then we just re, uh, uh, let them read history, right? It's one of the I, I would argue if you're an asset manager, and I presume this show talks to a lot of people who either manage their own money or manage on behalf of other people, I think if you run a portfolio today in sterling or euro or dollars, you also need to run it in gold because that is your true purchasing power. So it's really not about inflation. It's more about your maintaining your purchasing power. But what will catapult gold to a higher level, of course, is all of the failings that we talked about, but materially that the world continues, as I indicated earlier on, to believe that inflation is going back to 2 to 2.5%. And that is, as I said, 2, 5, 10, and 30 year forward, dictated by the market, says we are going to be at 235. Uh, I find that naive in a deglobalization world where we want to prioritize strategy, we want to prioritize military, we want to prioritize uh, keeping security at home, and we don't want to do reshoring. I, I don't necessarily understand why any of these things should be deflationary. Uh, at a bare minimum, I don't even understand why that could get us back to where we were before 
that would mean that there will be you know fiscal impulse when things close down it will mean that there will not be printing of money so i think the market has a very naive attitude to the forward looking uh, indicators and i think uh, this year at least for me as a trader and as a, as a uh, chief investment officer has told me that the market has no transparency in terms of predicting inflation at all. It didn't work for them two years ago. It didn't work one year ago, and it's not working now. So for me, it is more about you know uh, sensing and talking to companies, see what is reported in terms of margin squeeze, and that process is much slower than the market likes. Uh, but but overall, gold will be the refuge in a world where we also have competing currencies. Uh, I'm sure we're going to come to it in a minute, but one of the more outrageous things we are making claims on this year is, of course, that going to be an alternative to the to the mighty dollar and that debasement that, that will happen to the dollar. Yeah, we'll come back to that in a tick. And one of the other things that you say when you talk about inflation is that uh, a good amount of inflation next year will be driven by China backing away from its zero COVID policy and possibly even coming out with a new vaccine. And the protests that we've seen recently in China suggest they may be closer to pivoting away from zero COVID than, than we might have thought even a few weeks ago. Yeah, I, I, I find it uh, somewhat surprising. Uh, and I, I I shouldn't do, but I deem myself to be something of a, a China expert, having a great exposure both work-wise and, 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 and in terms of ownership of my company. And it's pretty clear that they cannot reverse course back to a total lockdown. The 20 measures already placed seems to be extended. And it seems like the, the battle right now is really between the local government one, not wanting to actually translate what the uh, central uh, committee is saying uh, and this is merely because we are of course in a phase in China where a lot of political local leaders are outgoing and they don't want to take the responsibility they want to leave that job to the incoming new uh, caters that comes in and, and needs to take care of that so I think there is a bit of logistic which is the the back burning uh, back on the back burner of what happened at the party Congress but I think as you rightly say I think it is almost inevitable they need to move to higher agenda because of course one of the shortcomings on the short side in uh, uh, in, in China is obviously uh, creating 10 million jobs a year has been very difficult so youth unemployment is going through the roof how do you do that if you're a central planned economy you restart the economy you lose not what we've seen on the property sector and and ultimately that stock market is a closed uh, circuit there is no external open balance uh, and uh, open account against the outside world. So that market is just purely manipulated to, to reflect what, what the, the central party wants to, to telegraph to you. Okay, so here we are with inflation much higher than anyone, except for you and me, of course, expects. And then number seven, and this I think would, if, I mean, I think it's, it's actually quite likely, it's the kind of thing that will really freak everybody out. Widespread price controls that introduce to cap official inflation. Um, and I, I assume you mean in, in most Western economies. Yeah, you know, uh, you know UK uh, has had this uh, history before in the 1960s and 70s, price control boards and the likes. We've seen it during World Wars. We've seen, as I said, uh, before we've seen it uh, even among the uh, Roman emperors uh, before that they dictate the price caps. And price caps is politically opportune, but of course it doesn't reduce the underlying problem, which is that we don't have enough grid capacity. It is not uh, able to actually secure new investment. It certainly will not increase the amount of basic research that happens. And it's not opening up all the venues, which is part of the solution. Instead, it will cap 
the, the, the prices, but it will increase the underlying demand. And it will probably, and I think from a number of companies that sits in the space of saving energy, they feel that right now all of the policy measures embedded into uh, future policies is about making marginally cheaper energy and not about reducing the consumption that we do today. Uh, and I think that is a, a, a story that will uh, certainly change in, in 23. Yeah. And you even say that we may see something like a new national board for prices and incomes being established in the UK and the US. I mean, it's all an incredibly 1970s. I wonder, do I mean, given given the existence already of windfall taxes and the like, can you see any possibility of the UK returning to dividend controls? Remember the days of dividend controls when companies weren't allowed to pay or dividends were limited? Is that is that another possibility? I asked just because one of the great attractions of the UK market is its yield, you know, very significantly higher than yields anywhere else, double that of the US, etc. If that's at risk, we should worry. I think, I mean, you are already doing it, aren't you? If you uh, windfall taxes on utilities, you are pricing out their ability to pay the dividend and, and be, uh, be a force of a stable portfolio in terms of asset allocation. So absolutely, there will be unintended consequences with it. So I think everything is on the table, basically. Because, you know, think about what's transpired in the UK. First, you had, you know, a laissez fair budget, and now you have an overly rigid uh, tightening of the, uh, of the budgetary. And mind you, it's backloaded, but the intention is to create a very fiscal tight monetary policy. And if you put that up against what is needed in the UK, which is to create new jobs, is to invest more in infrastructure, it is to make sure that the health sector get revitalized, not necessarily by throwing more money at, but certainly uh, making it better, work better, more and less red tape uh, and the likes. And, and the whole you know, last 10 years of trying to put Londoners against the rest of the UK needs to stop. I mean, it's one country, one nation that needs to, and, and which historically has been very good at coming through crises. But right now, the temptation for political side will be to go back to the 1960s, 60s and 70s. I would not be surprised to see that the ultimate course of action here is to devalue sterling massively and proactively in order to get some competitiveness back uh, in, in, in that space. And and part of that will probably come with a increased price control because you don't want that imported inflation to, to flare up again in, in the UK economy. But I think, you know, UK is now what we call a six, seven, eight uh, economy. They have 6% uh, uh, deficit on the current account, 7% budget deficit and 8% inflation uh, at, at best of times, right? I mean, this this is the worst record in the world uh, in terms of a uh, Western economy. So in the UK in particular, I'm very nervous about these price controls. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. 
Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I think we're doing a brilliant job of moving away from optimism. Thank you, Steen. Much appreciated. (laughs) Shall we move on to number eight? Um, uh, Lots of people, uh, OPEC and uh, China and India, they walk out of the IMF and they agree to trade with a new reserve asset. They give up on the dollar. It's happening, isn't it? It's, It's again one of these things that... The way it's framed, it's, it's slightly outrageous, but the underlying micro trend is absolutely what's going on. Uh, and I think, um, you know, again, Russia has played uh, both a positive and negative uh, lesson for, for a number of countries outside the Western world. And that is that you can be, uh, you can see punitive action in terms of access to dollar funding and overall to the uh, international monetary system. And, and a lot of people are saying if, uh, if China is the biggest importer of oil in the world, why don't they and Russia and Brazil and, and to some extent India on their import side as well, why don't they have a closed system of using a, a bartering or basket-like currency as someone we suggest? And, and through that way, reduce the dependency on the US-centric uh, monetary policy and also, of course, the, the ability to practically move money in and out of the system. We know Russia gave up on, on, on using uh, dollars, was it three, four years ago already? Uh, and uh, we have seen Saudi Arabia certainly, certainly uh, after after their very close relationship with Trump, but in in the Biden administration has been uh, on on a on a cold path in terms of diplomatic uh, uh, negotiations between the two countries, and they are increasingly, of course, again also exporting the other way out. Uh, Qatar uh, and the likes, and and NG on the other side feels that they have. Uh, and probably rightly so, they need to play a bigger role and, and need to play above their weight uh, um, in, in terms of the impact. So I, I don't think that's unlikely. The, the, you, you can contest whether IMF is going to break down, but I think the, the reason we use the IMF is also we wanted to signal that we think that the, the supranational uh, institution is, is, is very, very damaged by what's been going on since 2008, 2009. I don't think anyone upholds uh, IMF or even the UN today as an institution with integrity and a way forward for the world. 
I think they, a lot of people, at least in the political spectrum, but also among you know people who wants to to be as you as you talk about being positive, sees these as more of a hindrance than a, than an accelerator of progress these days because they have been bogged down in conventional thinking on in terms of the. Um, the COT carbon emission in terms of the uh, international health plans, in terms of the security of uh, establishing a, a, a sound monetary system. Okay, my slight worry here, Steen, is that all so far, most of the ones we've talked about have seemed all too plausible. <laughs> so either very likely or underway already. And there's another one here that, that I also think is all too plausible, in a good way, by the way, over the next few years. And that's number 10, tax haven ban kills private equity. Uh, that new taxes are introduced that really do spell the beginning of the end of the uh, private equity industry, and in particular that um, uh, in the US and hopefully in the UK as well, uh, the carried interest that is taxed as capital gains at the moment ends up being taxed as ordinary income, which would push a lot of the participants who are in it for the carry out. No, yeah, but but do you, do you also understand it's it's quite a controversial call, obviously, because private equity is very much an intrinsic part of institution portfolio is very much part of uh, family offices. But we, what we're trying to say is that if if you, and, and I am actually very positive, we can, we can get to that ultimately. We will. We'll but, end on a positive but the, note, I promise. <laughs> absolutely. We, I promise the, uh, the cliffhanger here is we are going to be positive ultimately. But, but if you want to think of a world that works better, a world that is more productive, we need to stop making it... Uh, uh, we need to stop allowing that people do things for tax reasons. People should do things for productivity reason. They should do it to be part of the solution, not being part of the problem. And uh, a lot of people in the private space will say, uh, look at how many jobs we have created, how many jobs we do support by doing this. But I would argue, and I can't uh, counter prove that or, or, or in any shape or form, but I will argue the capital market took care of that before private equity existed. Private equity you know, has grown outside its scope in the sense that private is supposed to be these investment that are very, which is very difficult to put onto the public marketplace, and then and there's a better protected, better grown inside a, a private sphere of high risk capital. But these days, they just pretty much sells companies to each other, and uh, I think there is a number of bad uh, uh, examples of how the uh, deals has been driven by tax havens, not by by the. Uh, the willingness or even to, to, to do a better job or create jobs or, or doing something. So I think in a world where we already started on a minimum tax in OECD, it's not unlike the OECD also go to full full length and says, uh, we need to have a philosophical discussion about why is there countries in the world which only business is to avoid tax. Yeah. And if we were going to have a conversation about private equity and the way private equity works, would we also need to have a conversation about the way public markets work and the uh, volume of regulation that appears to put people off wanting to be fully listed and the, uh, you know, well, the reams and reams and reams of it and the the constant uh, transparency that is required, which is in theory good, but which a lot of companies use as their reason for sticking private rather than going public. I agree. And, and what you're really saying indirectly, um, and sorry if I uh, overinterpret your what you said here, but but you know, it's private equity among other 
things has made it so complicated and the amount of loops you have to uh, jump through in order to to make a public market is no longer about having a great idea securing capital for it you need to look at the tax structure you need to look at the governance you need to make sure that uh, you know where does the money come from where is it happening so i think it also to make things easier for the world let's break it down to what it is it's capital the stock market is a is a public market that raises capital for the industry and is primarily used for that we as investor go invest in it and take the risk of doing it it's no longer about where we pay tax it's no longer about what uh, what what our starting point is from a tax situation benefit is actually because we want to buy into a company who is part of the solution which is productive and which is making money for its investors so i think it's it's self-fulfilling that if we reduce the complexity of taxes, we also reduce the complexity of doing IPOs and introduction and, and going into the public space. Do you think that would also involve a conversation about ESG overlays and ESG-related regulations? Again, I think ESG has a lot of merit to it, but it's no one, you know, you and I know it's not defined by any accounting board. It's not something specific. It is a very loose, loose uh, definition, which everyone wants to be on board on. And I think if you went through all the company lists in FTSE or S&P 500, none of them can do E, S and G. A few of them can do, a lot of them wants to do E, some of them can do S and pretty much none of them do G in the classic sense of it. I mean, Meta is a great example of a company which the complexity of the governance is worse than a Hong Kong listing, right? So it's, um, yeah, we need we need to slim down the, the red tape, but slimming down the red tape also means the rules needs to be clearer. Yeah. Slim it down, make it clear, make it easier. Okay, there's one in here that I don't agree with you on at all and I think is unbelievably unlikely and I think you've just put in to tease some of us, right? (laughs) (laughs) Which is number five, a country agrees to ban all meat production by 2030. You think that's that's a possibility? As you can probably tell, I didn't come <laughs> I, up with that one. But the, uh, I did wonder. I did but, wonder. But I know in the Netherlands, you know, we, have, we do keep reading about the sort of bizarre business of, of the government uh, compulsory purchasing farms in order to get closer to meeting their, their climate change targets, etc. But it still seems a little out there. But as the, you know, it really depends on, 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 on your perspective here, because as the as Sharon who wrote the piece writes, it's, if you think about if you really want to reduce CO2 uh, emission and and going to a carbon neutrality, you need to do things, two things. You need to account for what you import, one thing. And secondly, we need to address the, the fact that agriculture and the feedstock that we uh, produce is a huge chunk of the total CO2 emission that we do do. So I don't think it's unlikely a country, that being Sweden or Netherlands or something similar, over the course of the next three, five years, come up with a plan which it could start like something uh, no, no meat is served in the public sector. Then ultimately, it becomes the, you know, either with a high tax or, or marginally changing. But I think, if uh, again, I don't know uh, the age of your children, but when I talk to my children and their friends or whatever, I mean, this whole plan-based thing is 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 real. It is something that they want to achieve, and partly some of it is for health reasons, some of it partly is for the uh, for the carbon emission uh, part of it. But but I do think that. In a world that loves wokeness and being politically correct, and in a world where I, uh, which is one of my actual forecasts, where government's intervention and regulation is going to increase, not decrease, I think it's very likely it will happen. So I have to disagree on the probability, but I'm probably, to be honest, between privately between you and me, I'm probably at a, 
you know, 30 to 40% likelihood, not at 60 to 70. But but if you ask the young people on my team, they're probably at 60 to 70. I have to tell you that this conversation isn't just between you and me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I know it's interesting. I mean, you know, I agree with you that when you talk to young people, this is what you hear, that they want to go plant-based, plant-based and that they, they worry about agriculture and, and the environment, etc. But on the other hand, we know very well that most of the... Um, uh, plant-based meat substitutes simply aren't selling. No one wants to eat them. It's much easier to talk about being plant-based than to actually eat that heavily processed muck, right? But part, part of that is also technology not going through. I mean, as I'm told, you can have uh, artificially generated chicken and the likes, and, and then the price to market is too expensive right now. So maybe it, it's, again, as for usual, just waiting for technology to make a breakthrough. And and you're right that it's uh, it's it's very much uh, a product. It's it's a vision short of products, basically, right? It's a vision short of product. That is exactly right. And I have actually spoken to several of the companies that make this kind of lab-grown meat or are attempting to make lab-grown meat recently. And uh, you know, I'm told it's very effective, just insanely expensive. Uh, but then I have this sort of strange worry about it. I wonder if if you would share that when you look at say vegetables that are grown hydroponically. You know, everyone still says that. A tomato grown in soil still has a completely different taste and nutritional breakup to make up to a, a tomato grown purely in water because soil contains magic somehow. Being, being a part-time farmer, I want to believe that. I want to believe that, you know, the way we farmed uh, have some validity. But what is interesting, and i tell you something, that right now the Danish, uh, we had an election then, we haven't formed a government, but a big chunk of the parliamentary uh a conversation going on right now is exactly on how to treat the agriculture sector in Denmark, which is, of course, is a it's a big export component. So basically, what is the sort of the social democratic party and the left leaning party wants to make the uh, the agriculture sector more accountable and at a bare minimum have a plan to reduce the CO two. So maybe maybe the answer to our question is one technology and a vision with more products. But it's also the fact that as agriculture is forced to reduce its CO2 footprint, the availability and the scale of, of uh, being able to actually feed the world becomes smaller. So we actually need and it's driven towards this plant base, not because it's nice and it's it's vogue, but simply because the world needs it to do. For, don't forget this whole fertilizer crisis. I'm sure you've done some stuff on that as well that we had. There is, you know, being a part-time farmer, I know for a fact that when you increase fertilizers by 10%, you get 10% more growth. Right now, the world is operating at 60, 70, 80% off the fertilizer they normally use, uh, which means that the, the you know, everything we equal when we come into the next uh, season, there is a potential that we come up short in terms of the, uh, the, um, the, the number of uh, products that we can produce out of the agriculture production. Yeah, but I suppose what we must do is we're about to move on to positive. Listeners, any second now we're moving to positive, but I'm going to say one more negative thing, which is that my concern would be with agriculture that we make the mistake that we made with energy of jumping the gun and uh, thinking that we have technology in place for a transition before we do and ending up with not quite enough of the thing that we really need. Extremely valid point, and that is the whole theme of the war economy, that you prioritize some action without actually following up with the, uh, the tangibles, so to speak. Okay, right. Here we go, Steen. The optimism. Go. Go. Yeah. So in the market, as you know, there's a saying where uh, if you need lower prices, you need higher prices. 
And I think if we look back at 22 and look into 23, I think to, to some extent, the Russian did us a favor. I think the energy agenda and the talk about energy and the replacement of energy and the revitalization of the nuclear power sector has moved more in the last six months than it moved in the last 20 years. I think there is now a political platform to stand on, to understand better, and to mitigate some of the shortcomings that you just pointed out in the agriculture space we talked about. Merely the fact that we have great aspirations, but we don't have to have, we don't even have the physical infrastructure to deliver on that aspiration in terms of green transformation, and certainly not under a world where the uh, monetary policy is tired and exhausted, and where the handoff will be to fiscal. And as we push on a fiscal, uh, we will move into more constraints shown by, by this analogy to the war economy. But what I'm saying here is, and I go back to that, uh, what I wanted to point out earlier, if you look at the, the tangible assets in the world, they constitute less than 10% of the value. But imagine that we need more military spending, we need better infrastructure, better internet, better ports, uh, we need better uh, energy grids, we need to do, you know, carbon uh, cabling instead of uh, aluminium cabling. If we move to that, we will, of course, go through a period of sunken cost and initial investments. But what comes out the other side is a massive increase in productivity because I think the problem with the world over and under this uh, this sub subject of, of dealing with crisis through increasing debt levels and pretending that's no inflationary impact has gone. That that is that needs to be gone because if it's not, we're going to go back to the old ways, 2.35 inflation forever, and you know cost of capital being low. But right now, I think Goldman Sachs last week came out a report that the average working cost of capital in the U.S. has moved from 600 basis to, to point to 800 basis point. So understand this, in an, we are now in an environment where to actually borrow money and be profitable on the project you want to start up, you need to have a return on 8%. That same threshold less than 24 months ago was close to zero. So we created a massive amount of capital investments and projects that had no end goal, no productivity embedded into it, but it was really about the amount of eyeballs. So I think when I go to universities, uh, when I went to business school and universities over the last year, they all tell me they just don't want to, they just want to do an app and make $100 million. I think when I go to university and business school in two years from now, they want to be in businesses that are part of the solution. And it's not going to be because we want to, it's not because we plan it, but simply we need to find productivity to reduce inflation. And when we get the productivity, we also get the new amounts of jobs, we also get better social balance, and we get governments that it's again then able to not, not, not feel like they are on a, skating on ice, but really are having a firm grip on, on the tarmac and, and driving the car properly. So for me, the next five years, 10 years is going to be the most productive, most interesting uh, years in my career. And it's been a very long career already, simply because we are in the worst situation we've ever been. We are met by constraint after constraint. But as we are met by constraint, the ingenuity and the ability of both business and the microstructure to step up despite the heavy hand of government will be massive, in my opinion. Fantastic. So the rising cost of capital is a very good thing. Let me, and I agree with you, by the way, let me just ask you quickly, what is it that you suggest to young people that they study now or that what careers they go into? I'm always telling them to go into the fossil fuel industry because nobody else is and they'll make a fortune. <laughs> 
what are you telling them? They look horrified. They look horrified. And then I, I, I try and explain that, you know, we need this stuff. It's a good thing. We're going to need it for decades to come. Someone, someone's got to get it out of the ground and you might as well do it properly. You've been teasing me. I pretend to know about the future. But one thing I am 90% certain about is that the tangible world will be significantly larger 10 years from now. So my advice to any person in the world who wants to be part of the solution is to find a job or educate yourself in his, in what I call the tangible world, in the real world. This dream about creating platforms, getting Amazon to deliver your underwear with a drone one day early is not going to solve any issues. But addressing the apprenticeship shortage that we have, the skills of operating a machine, the skills of operating a water system, the skills of operating environmental issues and all this is going to be part of the solution. The money is going to be made. The job security is going to be in the tangible world, not in the intangible world. So to some extent, that, that of course also entails mining and fossil and all these uh, asset groups. And then I think it's going to be a huge reality uh, wake up because when people start to focus on what is solutions instead of non-solution, then it, it will change. And I give you a great example from the Scandinavian world. So after the 2008-2009 crisis, the biggest union in Denmark, the Metzler Union, decided, and this is interesting, they decided they were no longer in the business of keeping jobs, but they were in the business of creating jobs. In the following 10 years, the metal unions in Denmark not only had the highest marginal uh, increase in salaries, but also had the highest productivity. So I think sometimes it is as simply as that, as changing the world from one where we're trying to safeguard what we had yesterday and moving towards a world where we are changing the world to creating more jobs, less inequality, less carbon footprint, but also a world where there are more reality and less virtuality. Steen, thank you so much for joining us today. That was absolutely fascinating. And now we know what our children should do. Children, study engineering. And uh, we know what we've got to look forward to as well. I hugely appreciated it. And I have a horrible feeling or a good feeling that quite a lot of your predictions this year are going to come true, if not in 2023, but certainly over the next five years. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, and I'm pretty sure you must do after that conversation, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Rate us, review us only well, obviously, and subscribe to us. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Summer Sadi, editing and sound design by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Steen Jacobson. And don't forget to sign up as well to my colleague John Stepek's newsletter, Money Distilled, where lots of the things that we have discussed today will be discussed again. The link is in the show notes. Steen, talk to you again next year. Thanks so much. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. 
In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.